Let's reflect for a moment on this Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. Before the birth of Jesus to Mary, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, and this is from the, the book of Matthew, Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. In addition, in the song of Mary, she says in Luke 1, 46 through 47, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Contrary to popular tradition, Mary needs a Savior. She needs her sins forgiven. And so she rejoices in God, her Savior. Two weeks ago, I said that if you get rid of sin, if you get rid of judgment, then Christmas does not make sense. If you get rid of sin and judgment, then Christmas does not make sense. Jesus came to save people from their sin. Jesus came to rescue people from God's wrath and judgment. Now, what I feel like this morning is Scrooge. It was such great Christmas music until I came up here and started talking about sin and judgment and wrath. Give me a little bit and I'll start talking about hell. I'm just going to ruin Christmas for you guys. Just feel like I'm Scrooge, right? But I want to tell you this. If you take away sin, take away judgment, take away wrath, you will not understand Christmas. The carols that we've been singing and that we're going to see will not make sense to you. If you remove judgment and sin, you will not have a Merry Christmas. I'm going to be straight up with you. I mean, you may, it may be merry in the sense that you hang out with your family and exchange gifts, maybe sing some Christmas carols. But if you take away sin and God's judgment against sinners, then you have undermined Christmas. I, I would go as far as say, if you take away sin and judgment, you make Christmas null and void. If there is no sin, if there is no judgment, if there is no wrath, then you have reduced Christmas to silly irrelevancy. You have nothing but Rudolph with a bright nose and, uh, you know, guiding Santa's sleigh. If you take away sin and judgment, then you have more irrelevancy with Will Ferrell and Elf. That's, that's a good movie, by the way. Or, or you may have Ralphie in the Christmas story who's trying not to shoot his eye out. Or you may have Frosty the Snowman or whatever. And I think the worst thing you can do, if you take away sin and judgment, then all you have is baby Jesus in a manger with Mary and Joseph are there and the chronologically misplaced wise men are there. And then you have... Um, and you have shepherds that come as well. But I tell you what, what's that all about? It makes no sense. Take away sin, take away judgment. Then what was the point? So here's the deal. Leave it to me. I'm going to help you have a Merry Christmas. I am. I'm going to help you make sense of Christmas. So it's going to be one of those ironic Christmas sermons that we are going to plunge the depth of depravity in order that we can reach the heights of God's saving grace in Jesus. Yeah, we're going to go deep in our sin in order to reach up high and high at the mercy of our Savior. And what better place to do this than going back to the place we've been a few weeks and going deep in depravity, and that's the book of Romans. So let's go back to Romans. Back in Romans, we have finally reached 
Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Now, in order to get you in the Christmas spirit, I am going to read a portion of the text this morning from Romans 3, starting in verse 10. Listen to it. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Merry Christmas. Isn't that great? That's a great Christmas text, I know. So we're finishing up the bad news portion, right? We've been, remember we've seen that, that the Gentiles were breaking bad in their sin and the, and the Jews thought they were breaking good, but no, they were breaking bad as well. And they're all, humanity is culpable in their sin and accountable to a holy God who will judge sin. Both Jews and Gentiles are both sinful. And so now we come to the summary bad news portion of the gospel in, in Romans 3, 9 through 20. And the summary is basically this. All people are busted. All people are busted in sin and guilty of offending a holy God. All people. So, what do we do? Well, let's go ahead and just jump on in. See what the text has to say. We're going to go down deep in depravity to go up high in worship of grace in Jesus. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul says here that the Jews aren't any better off than the Gentiles, but earlier, if you remember two weeks ago, we saw that the Jews had an advantage. They had an advantage of the law, which revealed their sin, had the Ten Commandments and the promise of the Savior. But here he's saying the Jews aren't any better off than the Gentiles. And you've got to ask, well, they have the law. Yeah, but you know what? The law and the Word of God is, is, means nothing. You can have it, but that doesn't mean you embrace it. And so the Jews are not better off than the Gentiles because even though they have the truth, they are not embracing to the truth. Access to the truth doesn't mean you embrace it. And so he says the Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, maybe you don't know what sin is. Let's go ahead and give a quick definition of sin. Here we go. Sin. Sin is falling short of the expectation God has for humans. Sin is falling short of the expectations God has for humans. Now, when my kids are small and growing up, we do something with them called catechism. Some of you, I know, do this with your children, and some of you grew up with a catechism. Now, with the catechism, you ask a question, and the child gives an answer. And you can start this as young as two years old, or you can, like you ask your two-year-old, who made you, and the answer is God. It's really simple. And so you work through all these catechism questions over the years with your children. Now, it's always uh, cute at first, right? Who made you? God. But, you know, when you start trying to explain sin and you hear them give the answers, it's amazing. So let's do this. Question. You ask your kid, what is sin? And the kid says back to you, 
any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law by omission or commission. It's great to see little kids try to say those words. Now, let's try to understand what that, what that means. So, so commission is the, is the idea is that when God says, don't do something, and you do it, it's sin, right? But there's also the sin of omission, where, where God tells us uh, that what, what, what he, sin we, we don't do and he tells us to do. Like, for example, here's the deal, okay? So let's just say you sin when you steal, right? We all know that. You steal, you sin. But what about when God tells you to do good, to help the poor, and you don't? You get it? That's sin as well. And so it's sin of omission and commission. And so here's another great catechism question. How about this one? How sinful are you by nature? And the answer is, I'm corrupt in every part of my being. I love hearing three-year-olds say that. I am corrupt in every part of my being. And I'm thinking, yes, you are. But so am I. And so are you. I mean, you get it? Sin corrupts us. It, it corrupts our motives. It corrupts our thoughts. It corrupts our actions. We fall short of these expectations that God has for humans. He's holy, and, and, and we are not. So we fall short of his glory. And what follows here in Romans is a variety of Old Testament verses strung together to display this human corruption that infects all of us. Let's keep going deep in this depravity. Let's keep going. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now when we talk about this idea of total depravity, it doesn't mean that humans are as bad as they can possibly be. Why not? Like, why, why aren't humans just as bad as they could possibly be? Because the way it can be explained theologically, um, we have laws of this land. People don't want to get in trouble, so they obey the laws. Another reason why humans may not be as bad as they can possibly be in sin is that some people were raised in certain families or societal expectations where you do some things and you don't do others, and so that keeps, in a sense, sin in check. And also, humans were created with a conscience somewhat seared, but they can know right from wrong at times. So it kind of keeps sin in check. So when we talk about human depravity, it does not mean that humans are as bad as they can possibly be. Uh, let me give you a quote from Kent Hughes. He says this. This does not mean man is as depraved as he could be, but there's always room for deprovement because he is under the power of sin. I, I like that because we're in a society that sees us as evolving as humans. I saw a commercial last night just talking about how we're evolving and getting better and starting to get better as humans beings. We're getting more good. And the Bible couldn't be more opposite. There is this, this deprovement that continually can, can happen in the sight of a holy God. We are sinners. He is holy. There is a separation between the two of us. Now, if, if these verses we just looked at, I, I really like them because we live in a society that people want to be very inclusive, right? want to include everybody. Well, these verses, 10 through 12, are very inclusive. So if you love the inclusive language, here we go. Inclusive. The Bible, check it out again. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All. I love the word all. No one's left out. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So inclusive. That's all of us. 
All of us are infected with sin. I mean, do you understand that concept of being infected? Maybe, like, if you ever watch uh, The Walking Dead, have you ever watched that show? If, if not, it's okay, don't watch it. But it's in The Walking Show, there's these zombies, all right? They call them walkers, and they are, they are corrupted and they're in, infected, and you can see, and they're disgusting and gross. It's just sick-looking, but get this. The humans that are not walkers yet, they're infected as well. And it's just a matter of time. Once they die, they're going to turn into those disgusting beings as well, and the idea is that sin corrupts all. No one is left out. I don't care how good you think you are. You are corrupted at the core in sin. Now, now the next part I think is going to be really hard for you to understand. And I think, I think you're going to understand it, but you might not agree with it. So let, let, look at it again. It says, sinners are so corrupt that no one seeks for God. Nobody. That all of humanity is so corrupt in sin. Remember Romans 1, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange God for idols. Remember that in Romans chapter 1? The Bible is going to say over and over again that you are so corrupt, left to yourself, you would never seek God. In fact, the book of Ephesians uses the language of dead. Don't think walking dead where they can still move around. When we talk about dead, we're talking about real dead. What can dead people do? Nothing. They just lay there. And that's how we are in our sin. We're spiritually dead. So how can dead people seek God when the Bible says no one seeks after God? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there in the book of Romans. But a little, little tip you off here, God has to make you alive. He has to awaken you to give you the ability so you start to have some traction and some movement to seek him. We'll get there. But for now, they understand that no one left to themselves will seek after God. Now, if that's controversial to you, the next part is even more controversial, where he says that no one does good. Do you see it there? No one, in verse 12. No one does good, not even one. But what about the good works of those who are not Christians? I mean, we would acknowledge that, if, that some non-Christians do better good works and nice things than we do. Our neighbors sometimes just put us to shame, right? Like, they're just nice, just bringing us stuff, serving us, fixing our cars. And the Bible says, oh, no one does good, not even one. Well, well, how is it that I'm watching 60 Minutes and you have all these billionaires on there and they're giving away most of their fortune to help those who are suffering in the world? I mean, do I want to go up to Warren Buffett and say, no one does good, not even one? Not even you, Warren? He would say, I just gave away billions of dollars. What are you talking about? Well, according to the Bible, no one does good, not even one. Well, how's that possible? How should we understand that? Because we can see this is great philanthropy that's being done in the world, but how should we understand this text? Well, it's been explained in a variety of ways throughout history. One of the church fathers said it's like this. If you say you want to build a house, and you go, and you put up a wall on a house, and then you walk away, did you build the house? No, you just put up a wall. You didn't complete the project. The person who completes the project is the one who builds the whole house, not the one who just puts up a wall. And so the idea and the concept here is that good works that we're seeing in humanity are incomplete. They're not completing the project. And what do you mean they're not completing the project? Well, the Bible uses this terminology. It says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter, um, where would I have this at? Hebrews, it says, 
Everything that's not done in faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Remember that passage in Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the view is, since they do not have faith in Jesus Christ, the idea is that it's incomplete. They're not pleasing the Lord. There's also a passage in Isaiah 64, 6. It says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So in the sight of God, righteous deeds of those who do not know Christ are polluted garments. Their their good works are corrupted. They're not pleasing in the sight of God. And why is that? Because we are so infected in our sin that apart from Christ, the Bible holds that no one does good, not even one. That's hard word. That's hard language. And we're so corrupted that we're also corrupted so deep down that it starts to come out in our words, in our speech. Let's look at our speech in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, for those of you who are speech therapists or want to be speech therapists one day, you can really appreciate the physical parts mentioned here, the throat, the tongue, the lips, and, and the mouth. And can you imagine a therapist coming along trying to diagnose the problems of helping others improve their speech? And so here comes along a therapist and says, what seems to be the problem? And the idea is like, well, my throat is an open grave. My tongue, uh, it deceives, and there's poison under my lips, and my mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's going to, to make, no matter how good the therapist is, run away. Because all of us are busted in our sin and are guilty before a holy God, and it's often seen in the way that we use our words, things that we say. The imagery here is of a throat as an open grave. Don't you like that? It shows that these words that come out of our mouths, they come from somewhere deep within our hearts, and they come and they originate here, and they come out, and they come out of our mouths. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6.45. He says, The good man, out of the good things, stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart... His mouth speaks. So if there's corruption in your heart, it will come out. If there's deceit in your heart, it will show itself in duplicity and deception. If there's hate in your heart, it will show itself in words that come out like arrows to wound. And for those of you who have bitterness in your heart, it will show up in griping or complaining. And so if you wonder, if you're one of those people who likes to gripe a lot and complain a lot, that something's going on down here. You may be blaming other people and other things in your life, but there's probably some bitterness going on inside your heart. Because the reality is, your mouth will bust you. Your mouth will bust you. Your mouth will give you away. Your mouth will show what's going on inside of your heart. Because your depravity can be seen and heard in your speech. Before I became a Christian at 19, I cussed more than all of you put together. For sure. I have no idea. I, I grew up in, in, in a reality. I was shaped by a culture where I cussed all the time, and my heart enjoyed it, so I did it. Uh, I played tennis in high school and in college, and when I got on the tennis court, you did not want to be around, ever. I, I would cuss so loud and so much, and I would also do that in private. And I hear the gospel, and I get saved, and, and I'm thinking to myself, there is no way I will ever stop cussing because it is so a part of me. It's part of my my language is part of my culture. It's just what I do. It's in my, there's no way that cussing will ever go away. 
And I kid you not, God did a great work within me, and it, it really went away. It's one of those things, it just poof, God's grace. You know, sometimes you get saved, sometimes stuff just goes away. And that's one of the things that went away in my life. But recently, I've been thinking about cussing again. I have. I'm thinking, you know, I'm not getting my way. Maybe I should cuss again. People are not moving, and I need to get them moving, and then some cuss words may help. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about it again, and I'm going to tell you this. Where does that come from? It comes from the heart. It comes from the depraved heart, right? Something's still going on in me that thinks that the way I get traction and movement and others, the way I express my disappointment in life, somehow is going to be through cussing. It's, it's something going on right in my heart. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. You can't fix your heart. The only person that can fix our hearts and change our hearts is, is, is the Lord. And, and we, our speech may be coming out, may show our depraved heart. And, and, but the thing is, you can't tame the tongue. There, there's this verse in the Bible that says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So your tongue is just kind of out of control because your heart's out of control and you can't tame your tongue. But there is this one person who can tame your tongue, and that's the Lord. And the way the Lord tames tongues is that he changes hearts. And he's continued to change our hearts to so continue to tame our tongues. So even though our tongues may express our depravity, they come from a depraved heart. But God is the one who changes hearts, and he changes tongues. So not only is the corruption seen in our mouth, but it's also seen in our feet. Check out the feet in verse 15. You can see the actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So they're not just expressing their sin in their speech, but also in their action, and their, their corruption is seen in murder, as they're swift to shed blood. I mean, we, we have murder in Chicago. Uh, someone was just killed last night in Evanston. I mean, there's murder all over. I mean, there's, Jesus talked about hate as murder in the, in, in the heart, right? Uh, there is also not just murder, but there, it says, in their past are ruin and misery. You can think of how sin disrupts institutions. Sin disrupts nations. You can think of all the evil that Nelson Mandela faced in his lifetime. You think of all the evil that is existing in our culture and around the world right now as nation or against nation. But don't just point the fingers out here. Understand that this human corruption in our actions is also in our hearts. In the way we treat one another. In the way that we hurt one another. You may not hurt someone physically and they may not hurt you physically, but we can still hurt one another with our lives. I, I just wonder... Some of you have stories of people who have hurt you. I'm, I'm a pastor. I, I hear these stories often, and it, it kills me to think of what other people have done to you. It's sad. But also, you probably have stories to tell what you've done to other people, right? Now, we live in a culture that generally will let you off the hook for most things. If you go to enough counseling... You'll go to the counseling, and apart from grace and apart from Jesus, he's just left out. They'll let you off the hook for what you've done. No matter how bad you've hurt someone, they'll let you off the hook, and they'll try to give you therapy to make you feel better about yourself and say it's, it's ultimately no big deal. And they leave God out of the picture. But here's the deal. God won't let you off the hook apart from Christ. 
God is still holy, and we are still sinful. And when we hurt other people, God's not going to just say, well, I just, I'm going to let that slide, I'm going to let that slide, I'm going to let that slide, I'm going to let that slide. Apart from Christ, God holds us accountable, right, for our actions, and it'll be aimed at us. That's why we continued with the good news of Jesus, but we're getting there. So we have this human corruption. It's so deep within us, but it's ultimately rooted in the dismissal of God. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we move from the mouth to the feet, and now the eyes. They have no fear of God before them. Their actions, they don't understand their actions are offensive to God. God made them. He set the standard, and he, he will judge them eternally. And instead of submitting to a holy God, they dismiss him, and they carry out their, their own life the way they want to. So God is either gone, God is dead, he's inconsequential, he's irrelevant to their lives. And so they dismiss God. And I would say the dismissal of God is the root of all sin, right? God will just get you out of the picture. We're going to do what we want to do. We're going to hurt other people the way we want to hurt them. We want to say what we want to say. We want our agenda. And so when you see sin flourishing in a culture, society, and human beings, it's, all, it's often and always rooted in a dismissal of God. They've kicked them out to pursue their own agenda. And so let's go ahead and finish up. Paul finishes up in verse 19 and 20 to say all are busted in the sin. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments, along with the rest of the law and the, and the Word of God, bears witness to the corruption of society. In the presence of God, there is no human being that has ever kept the Ten Commandments or the law perfectly except for Jesus Christ. The law reveals our sin and shows us that we need a Savior. Do you understand that? No amount of your good works is going to get you in good with God. No amount of whatever you've done that is good is going to get you in good with God. When you stand before God one day, you cannot say, God, I went to church. God, I was baptized. I went to confirmation. I gave money to St. Jude at Christmas. I gave gifts to the poor. I helped people out. I was generally a good person. I shoveled my neighbor's snow. I did all the nice things I'm supposed to do. God's going to say, no, 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 no. I am holy. You are not. You are under my wrath. You are under my judgment. Apart from Christ, we are all guilty and busted in our sin and accountable before a holy God. There's no one that's to be let off the hook. No one will be let off the hook. No one will be let off the hook. If you think that somehow you're going to be a good person to get in good with God one day for heaven, you will not be left off the hook. You will, in fact, be judged. It's been explained this way. Um, a great theologian has a friend who is a Ph.D. in neurological studies at Harvard. His friend is trying to explain that the, the brain is more incredible than any of the computers in this world because the brain somehow it records all that's happened in our lives. So this guy, he thinks this is what's going to happen on Judgment Day. I, I don't think he really thinks this, but the concept is, is, is good. He's saying he thinks in the last day, here's the concept, God is going to take our brains out of our heads stick our brains on a table in his courtroom. And he's going to hook a recorder up to it, hit rewind, and then play. And everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, will be brought up. And there will be no need for any prosecuting attorney because 
we will have nothing to say. The Bible's pretty clear here at the very end where it says, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Hush, you have no defense before a holy God. All of us, every single one, inclusive language, are busted in our sin and accountable before a holy God. And if you do not believe this, and if you do not understand this, and if you do not grasp this, there's no way you can possibly have a Merry Christmas. In the theological, biblical, Jesus sense of the way, there's no way. Are you starting to get why Jesus came? Are you starting to see it? Are you starting to understand a little bit more why he came? We are messed up, people. Like at the core. And the good news is that Jesus came. This is what happened. He came and he, and he took on flesh. And he entered into human corruption as a baby. We know that, right? And even though that Jesus lived a perfect life, he experienced human corruption that was aimed at him. Remember what Jesus, his life, people were challenging him, people were rebuking him, people were cursing him, and eventually humans killed Jesus on the cross. And you would think there is nothing that could ever happen far worse to human than happen to Jesus by the corruption of other humans. But I want to make the argument there is, there is something much worse that happened to Jesus. There's something much worse that happened to Jesus. The worst of it is that while Jesus was on the cross, God's wrath was aimed at him because of human corruption. You see, get this. The uncorrupted one was viewed as corrupted in God's sight. Now, we who are corrupted are viewed by God as uncorrupted through faith in Christ. That's the best news ever. The uncorrupted one, that's Jesus, was viewed as corrupted in God's sight with our sin. Now we who are corrupted are viewed by God as uncorrupted through faith in Christ. Do you get that? That's the best news ever. That indeed makes Christmas merry. Jesus took our sin. God views him, views him as having our sin. We get his righteousness. God views us through faith as righteous in Christ. Uncorrupted. That is the best news ever and it should cause so much rejoicing at christmas time it should cause rejoicing year round the reality that my corruption and my sin has been dealt with with the coming of jesus through his life death and resurrection that is some good news and it adds massive relevance to christmas and it kicks out all this silly stuff all this silly irrelevancy so as I finish here, I want to tell you four ways. I really think this is, this is so significant to add some weightiness to your Christmas and kind of make it really stick with uh, very merry. The first is this, Christmas carols. Your deep sin should cause you to really worship God. I mean, you're going to walk into Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, wherever you're going to go, and you're going to hear Christmas music blaring, right? And so as you're standing in line waiting... Just listen to the words that you're hearing. I mean, you, can you even believe they're being played in secular stores, right? And you're listening to these words and just start thinking, this is good. This is what Christmas is all about. And turn around to the person behind you and say, do you understand what we're hearing right now? This is great stuff. 
pay attention to these carols over Christmas. And we want you to pay attention so much that we're giving you this free album today. Uh, and we want you to listen to it, soak in the words, pass it on to your neighbors and friends, and, and share this album that the downloads in your bulletin from our great worship team. Go deep with the Christmas carols. Second thing to having a Merry Christmas is the second part. It's called Christmas Collapse. Just because we've been rescued from the dominion of sin doesn't mean we're free from, the, from this presence of sin. One of the things that I see happen at our church, I'm sure it happens in a lot of churches, is that you're doing good right now. You're doing fine right now. But some of you will come back from Christmas and some of you will not be following Jesus anymore. Like a four-week period and boom, you're gone. Or some of you will come back in four weeks and you have done some foolish things. As you go home for Christmas, you're going to be out of your routines. Some of you will have some semblance of break and you'll have some spare time. And if you are not careful, you will start to have your old stuff come up again. You meet some people you used to know. Do some things you haven't done in a while. My brothers and sisters, be aware of what's still going on in this world. Be aware of what's still going on in your heart. There's a battle, and we need grace. We need mercy. So be aware of this Christmas corruption. The third is the Christmas communication. Most people that you know in your life do not take a view of humanity that we take here at this church. They see people as basically good. Most of the movies you will see are going to be about good people getting better, triumphing in the end. I just love those movies where people are so messed up and in the end they're just dead. I'm like, that's a good movie. I mean, that's good. I mean, I, I, like, I like some redemption sometimes. That's good. But just the reaping what you're sowing and where things are not always rosy, just give me one of those movies. My, yeah. Anyway, my point being is that people are not going to probably take the same view of humanity. And that, that's why you, you need to say to them, you know what? Christmas... Man, it's really bad news at first. It's bad news about your sin. But it's also really good news about a Savior. So take some time to share the gospel with your family and friends over Christmas. You're probably the religious person in your family, right? Share the gospel. Be full of grace. And the last is, is Christmas compassion. Oh, man, Christmas is brutal on some people who've been going through some trials who've experienced maybe pain in their life recently or over the past. Maybe there's some, some wounds that just seem to come up during Christmas. But this is your time to just show compassion and grace and mercy. And just think about all the injustices that have been done upon the world to those who are, are suffering as well, even ones you don't know. I, I know some of you, uh, three months ago, you, some of you started mentoring children. Remember that locally? You're still doing that? Step it up a little bit. I know you're about to leave maybe for the break, but step it up. Spend some extra time with them. Those of you who took on seniors with senior connections, the, the elderly, step it up. See them some more. Encourage them. Build them up. Show some Christmas compassion. I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make Christmas relevant. And the way we make it relevant is we elevate Jesus Christ, and we know he really came to save us from our sin. And to that end, we worship and praise him. Let's pray. Lord, you're wonderful, you're so merciful to us, and we just thank you for Jesus, who came to save us from our sins, that we put our faith in you and we are forgiven.
and there's much grace, the wrath of God is turned away, and we get his favor. Lord, may we celebrate this Christmas by being mindful that there's still stuff that's stirring in us that's not right. And I ask you to protect my brothers and sisters from corruption over the break. I also ask that you would protect them from getting involved in things that they don't need to get involved in that's going to distract them from you and their relationship with you. And Lord, give us a heart for those who are suffering during this time to reach out with compassion and grace and your mercy. And Lord, may we worship you. Worship you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.